You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time now for Phil Forsberg and the Desert, remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Before we get started, though, with all of our military shows, we take just a moment to remember our brothers and sisters. And um, we just take a moment of silence to uh, pray for those that have gone before us, those that are on active duty now, and those that are coming and will be on active duty. So we'll just take a, a one minute to think about them. Thank you, and thank you for thinking about our brothers and sisters and those that uh, have paid the ultimate price to protect you and me, and uh, we appreciate the folks that return from Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and uh, Phil and I have some sort of exciting news that we just found out about, or I just found out about anyway. Phil, how are you doing today? Doing great, David. Good. And, uh, Glad to be here. Well, it, we appreciate you being here and and relating your experiences uh, in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, I'll let you tell us what the good news is. <clears throat> well, as you pointed out today, David, um, there is a National Desert Shield Desert Storm uh, War Memorial that is uh, being planned. They apparently secured... Uh, some real estate uh, in the what they call Area One there of, of uh, Washington is uh, where the other war memorials are. So um, it's uh, there's a uh, nonprofit uh, organization that stood up tax deductible. Uh, what do you call that? Five hundred three C one or five five hundred one C three. Okay. Exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, so you can donate to that if, if you're interested. Um, and on their website for the uh, National Desert Shield Desert Storm War Memorial, they um, have a very interesting uh, YouTube video that, that sort of recaps uh, the events of Desert Storm, which has sort of took me back a little bit when I looked at it. <clears throat> You know, I wonder if uh, this memorial is going to going to be as the Vietnam Wall, uh, in that I think the wall has done more for veterans' families than any other monument ever, and that's listing all the names and where you can go in and get closure and. 
Uh, it's like the Johns Creek healing wall that is a replica of the of the wall in in Washington D.C. It's fifty uh, percent size, I believe it is, and uh, it's the one that traveled all over the country. But it has brought closure to so many friends and so many families that lost loved ones during Vietnam. And I hope that uh, the Desert Shield, Desert Star Memorial will do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I realized that I, I did see that, uh, well, apparently there are... Uh, there was 383 uh, uh, Americans that lost their lives in, in Desert Storm, um, and uh, uh, close to that many, around 400 or so, uh, wounded. If I don't, uh, if I'm quoting that correctly, um, of course that would be combat wounded and combat deaths. They're all, you know, <clears throat> just like in garrison in peacetime. There's always uh, injuries and. Uh, and illnesses and uh, and unfortunately deaths, a lot of training deaths. Um, it's very dangerous uh, equipment. You know, it's deadly equipment that we're working with, and so uh, sometimes there are you know aircraft crashes or um, other things, uh, other trying training accidents that uh, take the lives of our soldiers. And I do recall there were certain number of uh, traffic accidents in Saudi Arabia while I was there that, that claimed the life of some of our folks uh, tragically. You know, uh, and I'll ask you this, Phil, and this is this is offhand, and I don't know the answer to it. Um, obviously, Agent Orange has been recognized as a killer, as has, from the Desert Storm, Desert Shield area, the uh, uh, burn pits as causing uh, carcinogenic problems. Uh, do you know if those folks that lost their lives after they returned from Vietnam or wherever uh, and died because of, are they added to the wall? No, I don't think so. Okay, um, strictly has <clears throat> to be in combat. Yeah, I mean, if they if they were uh, direct, uh, you know, as a result of, you know, let's say for instance somebody had a, uh, you know, a, a wound or something, and they were evacuated, uh, you know, back to the states, uh, and you know, died before being released from the hospital then they they would probably be counted as uh, battle deaths um, but I think treated and released if they died subsequently of that condition then uh, I don't think they're included <clears throat> uh, it, but it does bring up uh, a good point uh, David that I'd like to uh, just beat my drum a little bit again With, if you have <clears throat> Any anybody served in uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, or before or since in uh, in combat or peacetime overseas or in, in the U.S. Uh, if you're a veteran and uh, you uh, have a condition that uh, 
was uh, aggravated or uh, caused by your service, uh, it's important for you to get a, uh, uh, a talk with a service officer from one of the veteran service organizations uh, and, and file a claim with the VA. Uh, I do volunteer work with disabled American veterans, and uh, they're always very willing to help. Our chapter uh, the, in Marietta, Georgia, uh, probably uh, submits more claims than any other chapter in the state. Uh, you can call any uh, any chapter of the DAV or any VFW post or American Legion post and uh, ask to speak to a service officer, and they'll they'll help you with that. And I and, think uh, also if you. Uh, subsequently pass away as a result of a, a service-connected disability, uh, the, uh, the VA can, will make a, uh, if, you, if your dependents file for it, they'll, they'll make a, uh, a payment to your uh, dependents, uh, minor children, unremarried spouse, etc. Um, and those are, those are ongoing monthly payments. I think that's fantastic, and uh, the veterans are finally getting the recognition that they always should have, and, you know, it's, uh, they fight to keep our country free, and they serve to keep our country free, and they still are, and they're doing it as we speak, and I... Generally speaking, Phil, we don't get too political between the two of us, particularly on the show. But, you know, I have to say one thing, and and I do it hopefully that uh, the ones, the folks that are listening will appreciate my comment. And that is that anybody that has received a Purple Heart, they have been wounded. It doesn't. It doesn't go into detail how the wound has to happen, but they have been wounded on in a in a war zone, generally speaking, and they are recognized with the Purple Heart. And one of our politicians lied about getting a Purple Heart and went and bought one at an Army surplus store, I guess, or something, and then threw it on the White House grounds and anybody that doesn't have more respect for our military and our men and women that were wounded saving his tail and protecting him and his Heinz wife you know I just I deplore him I can't stand to even say his name and with that little respect for what our real heroes go through. Uh, he shouldn't ever be elected to anything, in my opinion. But anyway, let's go on with uh, this memorial. I, they are saying they're going to have groundbreaking, I believe, uh, sometime in 2021. Uh, that's what I read, and uh, I would like to see that. I, you know, I might even go up and uh, and attend that myself. Oh, that would be great. You could. You could give us a live and direct report, right? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, on the scene. All right. Uh, and I guess they had one little 
picture of it, sort of. But I assume that in the near future, they'll probably have some renditions of what it's going to look like. Yeah, um, I think they were still up in the air about that. Um, you know, it, it's a difficult thing. You know, somebody's going to like it and somebody's going to hate it. I remember when the Vietnam uh, War Memorial went up the wall there, they, uh, you know, there were folks that uh, thought that the whole thing sort of slighted the Vietnam veteran by, you know, putting it sort of underground and out of the way of everything. Um, but others thought, you know, it was kind of poetic in, in what it did. Yeah, and I... Uh... Well, just like you said, it takes two to uh, everybody has their own opinion. I'm just glad yeah. to see. I'm just glad to see that they're doing something, and that it will be memorialized, and that uh, the veterans and and you know, I, I can't again come across uh, politically, but it's like. Uh, Como said, "Well, it doesn't matter whether you die in a in a hospital or in a nursing home. Well, it, you know, you're still dead. Well, I'm sorry, but I think every war should have its place and have its memorial. And we don't know what those three, you know. And I'm I'm glad it was a low number, uh, you know, at 348 with however many men served in in Desert Shield and Desert Storm." That's, I, I guess, in some ways, and correct me if I'm wrong, Phil. That that shows our superiority in many ways. Yeah, <clears throat> um, we, uh, you know, one of the things I was very pleased with uh, the mission that we did over there was uh, it was a hundred percent complete to the uh, to the satisfaction of. Uh, our boss, the president, he said, okay, you're done, go home. Uh, and that was, you know, basically in record time. Um, Saddam had the fifth largest army uh, in the world at, at the time. And uh, I think he had uh, a much smaller uh, portion of, of the world's military resources when we were done. Um uh, you know, it it was good. It was it was done. It was done quick, and it was done quick because the soldiers knew you get this done, you can go home, and that's all they really wanted to do. Um, I didn't care much for Saddam Hussein, but you know, I'd have just as had just as soon stayed at home. Uh, but uh, you <laughs> to know, begin with, yeah. With, when you wear the uniform, you you do what you're told. Yes, sir. And I guess as it wound up, probably Desert Shield and Desert Storm were, and again, please correct me, but probably one of the most surgically fought wars ever. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was kind of the beginning of, of your real precision warfare. Um, and uh, also, you know, uh, I, I kind of uh, 
made the analogy. It was it was sort of like you know fighting a war on a on a blackboard. There weren't a lot of terrain features to concern yourself with. There were weren't you know forests to hide behind, and there weren't uh, urban areas where you know our enemy was hiding out pretty much. Uh, a little bit, I guess, in Kuwait City, um, but. Uh, when we started rolling them up, they, they bugged out of Kuwait City fast as they could. Well, and that type of warfare saves lives, correct? It saves American lives and coalition lives, for sure. Right. On that note, we're going to take our first break. We'll be back with Phil and talking Desert Storm, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And I can't believe it's been 30 years now. 30 years. Gee, we'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. And we're back on the Desert Shield, Desert Storm, remembering Desert Shield, Desert Storm show with our guest, or not guest host, he's he's our host, Phil Forsberg. And uh, Phil served in both Desert Storm and Desert Shield. And uh, we were just talking about the fact that uh, there is now going to be built a memorial to the war and to the folks that uh, served in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, as Phil mentioned, it is a 5013C that you can go online and find out where you can donate to the project. And uh, hopefully uh, they'll do groundbreaking this year, and then uh, I don't know how long it's expected to take. They have to go through a lot to get to the even to construction, like you were talking about, Phil, the, the, I'm sure they'll have to submit a number of different design options. And I guess this uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Storm Committee will decide on the whatever kind of architecture or whatever route the uh, memorial takes. But I'm glad to uh, I'm glad they're doing something. And you're. You know, you were basically a spotter of sorts, for lack of better words, uh, in your flying over there, correct? Right. Uh, Yeah. My uh, 
<clears throat> so I I flew the uh, the OB one Mohawk uh, aircraft over there. The primary mission we had was uh, side looking airborne radar, and it was looking for moving targets on the ground. The Mohawk had been designed and and, uh, and sort of perfected during Vietnam, uh, and uh, they had a lot of things where they were looking for and I, activity coming from. Uh, from the north down into South Vietnam with, uh, at that time. And uh, later on, it was uh, very, very um, uh, instrumental in monitoring the, uh, the Iron Curtain and, the, and uh, you know, uh, checking. It was the early warning for uh, Soviet forces moving, uh, you know, across into West Germany. Um, and then... Uh, by the time we got the desert storm, we were very, very accomplished at looking for moving, moving targets on the ground there using this side-looking airborne radar, and um, so we uh, we were able to use it there uh, with great effect. And, I, I, I guess uh, the uh, after you know when the when the actual uh, conflict began, uh, we didn't just stack arms and and wait for the war to be over. We uh, <clears throat> we began flying missions and, and uh, uh, locating uh, targets uh, real time and, and sending those uh, to the uh, the Airborne Battlefield Control Center that would uh, assign those targets out to uh, to the uh, various uh, Air Force, uh, Navy, and Marine Corps assets uh, that could uh uh, engage those targets. We, so, uh, we've yeah, never we, we've never talked about it before, but obviously in Vietnam you had a vegetation issue, whereas in um, Desert Storm and Desert Chill <laughs> you, you didn't have much vegetation at all. So did it make it that more effective? Uh, you know, this may surprise you, David, but I was a little too young for. Uh, Vietnam, so I don't have any Mohawk experience in Vietnam, uh, but I don't think uh, I don't think really the uh, vegetation would would hamper the uh, the side looking airborne radar because it would it would go right through the vegetation. But uh, you know, in Vietnam, you had a lot more um, uh, you know people on bicycles and things that wouldn't really show up as moving targets. Uh, moving things and you know boats on the river kind of floating along where everybody else is uh, so um, but for uh, in the desert you know we, there were no there was no road network out there um, you know paved roads uh, but the Iraqi forces were all uh, deployed along the border between Iraq and Saudi Arabia uh, to the west of Kuwait, and uh, you know, we wanted to know where they were, uh, and we needed to know what their, um, um, you know, times of day that they moved, where their troop concentrations were, uh, that sort of thing, and uh, uh, so we built this database before the hostilities broke out, and. Uh, so we knew exactly where they were, where they were concentrated, what routes they took across the desert, when they moved. So 
those P-52s coming from Diego Garcia, uh, they were not just bombing blind in the desert. They were they were uh, bombing the troop concentrations out there. And uh, the fact that they allowed us to build this database on them, locate them, and uh, you know do all this intelligence collection on them. Uh, really facilitated a, a very effective uh, air campaign that kicked the whole thing off. Okay, now, again, I'm, <laughs> I was on such a low end of the totem pole, but uh, where you keep talking about side radar, and radar, as is, is I know it, and I think most people know it, is, is a signal being sent out and hitting something and being bounced back. Is, is that... Right and yeah, carry. that's correct. Uh, so the way this system worked, uh, it sent out a signal, and it got a reflection back, uh, and there was sort of a, a little differential uh, between the you know one signal and the next. That you know uh, we we would have uh, a faint uh, image of the terrain that would come back. And then uh, there would be a little um, tick mark everywhere there was something that had moved. Uh, it had to meet certain uh, thresholds in order to be, you know, counted as a moving target. Couldn't just be leaves blowing in the wind. Um, but uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the, you know, uh, certainly a tank or a truck uh, driving along a road would would have the threshold. And so it would make this little tick mark over this the faint imagery of the uh, of the terrain, and uh, we could just match up the, the terrain to the map and find the location where they were moving. Um, it, you know, I mean, it was 1960s technology, really. That uh, it, uh, the system in the airplane that that made this imagery. Um, it printed it basically on a heat-sensitive uh, acetate, and uh, so it would, it would come down in, in rolls um, and showing uh, where you know where these targets were. I, I was going to ask: Did it were was the radar used in conjunction with uh, with heat-sensitive uh, equipment? Like at night or something like that. You mean like infrared? Yeah. Now, you know, believe it or not, the uh, the Mohawk did at one time have an infrared system uh, to look for infrared uh, for like campfires and stuff along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They were looking for during Vietnam, but we hadn't used uh, infrared in a very long time. I imagine you know uh, there's a lot that's done. Now with all the satellites we have, mm-hmm. you know, or you can go on your computer and get a <clears throat> a picture of, of my house, uh, you know, uh, anytime you want. So, uh, you know, it's it, things have changed exponentially oh, since yeah. uh, technologically wise since uh, since Desert Storm. With that note, we're going to take our second break, and we'll be back with. The Colonel, right after this. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, 
Consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back with talking about Desert Shield and Desert Storm with Phil Forsberg. And uh, I find all of this interesting. And like you said, Phil, uh, the changes that are – and you wonder what's going on in the in the lab today. Uh, we've advanced so much since Vietnam, and I don't think because we're in the best country in the world – the technology hasn't stopped. Somebody's doing something, and we'll marvel at what it is when it comes around. And speaking of marveling, is I want to invite everybody to uh, remember that uh, we've got one of the greatest places in the world to go, and that's the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And they're going to have their uh, induction ceremony April the 3rd, at Newtown Park in Johns Creek at the Vietnam Veterans uh, uh, Memorial, which is a replica of the Healing Wall. And uh, that'll be April 3rd. It starts at 2 p.m. And as Rick White was advising me, if you want a parking place anywhere close, unless you just want the exercise, uh, you best get there well before 2 o'clock. But it's going to be April the 3rd, a Saturday, at 2 p.m. And uh, I want to both Mike Mazel and Rick White just do. Mike is at the Johns Creek Healing Wall. And Rick White, Colonel Rick White, retired, is at the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And I always like to add Paul Longer because he was the one that really was instrumental in getting the hall of fame started and it's being copied all over the country at this point which is great every place needs to honor their heroes and um, if you haven't been it's in the floyd building right across the street from the state capitol in downtown atlanta and it's well worth any day take your kids take your family and go and visit the georgia military veterans hall of fame and uh, so I hope I've done justice for Rick White today. He is a great man, great officer. So back to Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Did uh, you? We were talking about the radar. Did and I? I'm not familiar with that area at all. But was there what? Was there anything like sandstorms or anything like that that would uh, mess you all up? really didn't mess up the imagery it messed us up on the ground when the, there were sandstorms which uh if i'm not mistaken christmas day we had a pretty bad one christmas day of 1990 but no we uh it, like i said 
that's why, you know, from my perspective, a fight in that war was sort of like fighting on a blackboard and no <laughs> jungle or cities really to hide in. And, uh, you know, um, I mean, a lot of that conflict took place out in open desert. Right. And uh, it, it was, uh, I, you know, I used to fly around looking at that desert and uh, I would just turn to my right seater there who's uh, you know we only had one pilot in the Mohawk and uh, so I turned out to my uh, observer there who was working the system and I would just say to him look at this I said can you believe we're fighting over this <laughs> <laughs> who who wants this pile of dirt or sand <laughs> so, you can have it uh, that sandstorm you were referring to on Christmas day or whatever do you remember, I'm just curious, because uh, I come from a sandstorm country in Texas, but um, do you do you remember offhand what the ceiling was? What, the ceiling? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when it got like that, it wasn't really a definite ceiling. Uh, it was just a nasty uh, dust layer. Um that was from about 8,000 feet on down to the surface. It was very, very, very hazy. Uh, it mixed with the moisture. And then, of course, later after Saddam decided he would light all the uh, oil wells on fire, um, that you know brown haze layer from 8,000 to the surface became sort of a, a black haze layer, black-gray haze layer from 8,000 down to the surface. I can remember flying an instrument approach into uh, our home base uh, and they said there was you know, no ceiling that day, but the visibility was just horrible. Hmm. But you could, even even in the Mohawk, you could still top it, right? And, and still what? Still get on top of it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, yeah, we, typically we flew our missions at uh, 8,000 feet and uh, I'm sorry, 10,000 feet, uh, and then uh, the, there was another system we flew uh, on a sister-type aircraft that would go at about 17,000. So we were we were up in the clear air pretty much on our missions. So you were oxygen-equipped, obviously. Well, we did have an oxygen system on board, um, but... Uh, it wasn't really, uh, didn't have the capacity to hold enough oxygen for us to be wearing it the whole time. So we sort of uh, left the oxygen mask in our lap, and whenever we felt the need, we'd take a couple of sips of uh, oxygen. The, um, you know, we needed the oxygen on board. It needed a certain amount just to uh, have enough. Uh, in case there was a uh, smoke or, or some fumes in the cockpit that had to go on our oxygen at that time. Would I, I know that you, like most officers, are historians. Would you say that there was anything about Desert Shield or Desert Storm that you could look back on and say, well, this is what Patton did, or this is what they did in, in Africa, or it, could you compare Desert Shield and Desert Storm to anything? Well, uh, you know, I'd say, you know, the North Africa campaigns, uh, World War II, uh, were probably fought on a uh, 
a similar um, uh, playing field, sort of like fighting on a uh, on a blackboard. But the uh, the problem uh, is that they, they didn't have near the the technology that we had, even with our rickety old Mohawks. Um, you know, we were we would have been uh, strategically uh, important had they had that technology back in uh, World War II. So it was it was probably most similar to the North African campaigns, uh, especially because it was highly mobile, uh, armored warfare, primarily, um, you know, in open terrain. Did did you all interact? Or did you, not you all, but that's a Texas term, by the way. Uh, did, you, did you interact very much with, you mentioned it a minute ago, the global systems, uh, the satellites. Did uh, Were you ever uh, interacting to the point that a satellite or somebody running the satellite or monitoring the satellite came back and said, you need to go, you know, see what's going on in this sector or whatever like that? Uh, no, <clears throat> we uh, we didn't get cued to go look at certain areas um, because of, uh, you know by any kind of uh, national system, but we uh, <clears throat> we um, would go uh, basically fly a track for you know it was a defined track that was in our briefing before we took off and. We'd go just go back and forth on that track until we were relieved by uh, another aircraft. Wow! So uh, that type of uh, mission is is known as surveillance. So you're just you're just back and forth, uh, looking, taking a broad view of everything. And I think you mentioned one time on one of the earlier shows, a lot of those missions would be uh, eight hours long. Yeah. No. Uh, well, no, there were nine hours was the amount of flying that we would do in a in a day, uh, and uh, but six of those hours were uh, actually on station in the mission area. Uh, so you do six hours, and then there's uh, another three hours of transient time that we had to do before going into and getting out of the mission area, and, and you know dropping off our imagery uh, with the uh, analysts. At, at the core headquarters, so it was um, you know one one fly one mission day would be uh, about nine hours of flying, and uh, we did that uh, every other day. Uh, I did pretty much every other day through that. My uh, my unit, the Fifteenth Military Intelligence Battalion, A Company, the Fifteenth Military Intelligence Battalion, had the Mohawks, and we. Uh, we broke a record um, that had been held by our same unit uh, in Vietnam uh, for most uh, hours flown uh, by a Mohawk company uh, in a 30-day period, and we uh, we broke that with uh, half as many aircraft as our Vietnam counterpart had. Wow. Somebody had to be tired after that. I was bone-tired. I bet, golly, that you know. And uh, are there any regs on how long you can fly and how many days in a? Well, like you just said, you flew one day and off one day, but um, uh, you know, <clears throat> the 
All the services have uh, rest and duty regulations for safety purposes. Uh, what's unique about Army flying is uh, if you exceed any of those, you uh, you just go talk to your commander and tell them if you feel well or not. And uh, the uh, in other services, uh, you know, commanders can be relieved for for violating those maximum maxima but in uh, in the army it's uh it's just a buddy check uh when you get to those limits at least it was that way hmm well you know and i i guess folks understand it becomes a, a safety issue as well well yeah that's hmm. i mean that's the reason for it yeah <laughs> and uh and remember you know that flying in the mohawk was not not like flying around on a seven thirty seven or something where you can get up to walk around, <laughs> walk around and make yourself a cup of coffee and come back. You know, this was uh, this is nine hours basically strapped in an ejection seat. Now, um, now wait a second. Uh, I think it was Rick White. One of one of your friends told me that that you 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 all in your Mohawk had. Um, had uh, what they used to call stewardesses, but uh, that you all, you know, you had flight attendants. Is that not correct? Uh, no. No, there were two chairs, both made by Martin Baker, uh, ejection seats. And, uh, you know, uh, when, when you strap in there, your shoulder harness uh, is actually your parachute risers, and your, uh, your lap belt is actually... Uh, holds your uh, your uh, survival uh, kit to your to your seat so uh, it was uh, yeah not not big in comfort and the <laughs> uh, the padding on the seat of a mohawk was uh, well they, they said they couldn't make it too padded because you, you know you might break your back uh, in an ejection so the padding on the seat was about as thick as a uh, ultra plush uh, bounty paper towel. Phil, we got to take our last break before the end of the show, and I I want to throw out one one quick thing: is that uh, Atlanta's no different from any other city. One out of four of the homeless on the streets are veterans, and that's deplorable. We, we work closely with uh, a lady that has a street ministry called Shine is Light, and they've asked us to be a collection point for these plastic bags that you get at the grocery store or any place you get them, and it takes 500 of these to make a pad. But they're making these pads. Forsyth uh, Central High School is making the pads, and they're giving them out to the homeless, and it keeps them from wet concrete or cold concrete or even hot concrete when they're trying to sleep at night and get some kind of shape, form, or fashion of rest. But we pray every day for the homeless and the veterans that are homeless, and uh, in my opinion, that just shouldn't be. But it is a fact, and if you have a bunch of those plastic bags stored up or if you'll start collecting them for us, you can bring them by the radio station, and we'll see that uh, Frankie Holbrook, it's its her ministry, and uh, we'll get them to her. And uh, 
You're listening to America's Web Radio, and we're glad to have you listening in. We'll be right back after a couple of words. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And, you know, I know that uh, Brother White listens to us, uh, Colonel Rick White. And um, he is, uh, like I said many, many times, a tremendous man. Uh, He must have been a tremendous leader. But Rick and I were talking the other night that, and and I uh, I'm very very fortunate in that uh, every show, and it's whether it's this show or any other show, I learn something from it. And uh, we all have, even at my age, I still have a little bit of area that is entitled to learn something and and does. And I think it's fantastic uh, talking to you, Phil, and what you went through and what our government. Do you, you know, like you said, it was a, the Mohawk was a Vietnam. Was it introduced first in Vietnam? Uh, it was first combat for for the Mohawk. It was, uh, I think, the first prototype flew in nineteen fifty nine. Yeah, so just really at the beginning. Yeah, and uh, okay. <laughs> Now you force me to ask something else, and I, I hope it's not. I assume it's not classified, but uh, okay. You're flying a mission, and you're collecting data. How did you collect the data? The uh, <clears throat> so the imagery, uh, uh, you know, the terrain and the and the moving targets superimposed on the terrain would be uh, printed. Uh, there would be a. In front of the my enlisted observer that sat in the right seat, there was a system that uh, had a sort of a light table in front of him, and there was a there was a supply reel of this heat sensitive acetate, and then there was a heater bar that would put the imagery on it, and then it would roll across this light table onto a take up reel at the bottom, and um, so as we would go, it it would be continually producing this uh, this image on uh, heat sensitive acetate we could uh, we could take that acetate you know that when we would complete our mission we would bring it to the to the core headquarters and and uh, drop it off for the uh, ground imagery and analyst to uh, look at and do a more detailed uh, uh, assessment of what's going on but in the cockpit, my uh, my observer was trained to do a sort of a field expedient uh, check, and so he would do uh, you know if there were early warning or later during the combat, uh, we he we would actually he would give me the, the latitude and longitude of where the moving targets were, 
and then I would pass them over the radio to the uh, Airborne Battlefield Control Center. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, no, it wasn't on a thumb drive or anything like that. We had heat-sensitive acetate. That's amazing. Now, Mohawk, you know, had a had an interesting feature. Um, you know, when they when they knew they would have this uh, this imagery to drop off, they uh, they devised a way to drop it off without landing. Um, underneath the pilot seat uh, was a little uh, trap door. <laughs> the cockpit was not pressurized, so um, you could take uh, this heat sensitive acetate and roll it up in a spool and stick it in something that looked sort of like a Pringles potato chip can. <laughs> and uh, and it may have been electric. There was an electric motor for running the uh, the the seat up and down, and so you run it all the way to the top, and it would expose this. Uh, Spot in the uh, in the floor with this trap door, and you drop this uh, this cylinder down in there, and, and there was a little handle that uh, by my right knee that I could uh, pull, and it would open this trap door, and this whatever was in that chute would fall out. <laughs> uh, so you could fly over a, a headquarters and drop it off. Um, I must say uh, that's pretty low tech. Yeah, well, you know, it worked. It worked. <laughs> uh, that's that's funny. It, and I, I had the passing thought as you were talking about the the uh, light box that your right seat had. Did that ever bother you in the cockpit when they, when he would be looking at it or using it? You know, in the daytime, you wouldn't see it. But it, at night, you know, it, it could be. And so there was a red filter, uh, like a, a door with a, a red lens over it that would just uh, cover that. So at night, it, it was covered with a, like a red lens. Hmm. Okay, so today, are the Mohawks still flying? Uh, they're not in the U.S. Army inventory. There are a couple of outfits that have them uh, for, uh, like, uh, I think the, there's an Army uh, Aviation Heritage Association down south of Atlanta, Peachtree City, I believe. They may have one. Uh, we gave some of them, uh, a number of them, the ones that I flew, got sold to uh, Argentina, to their army, uh, and they flew with them. But I think they're all retired from the Argentine army. Israel had one or so. Uh, Forest Service had one or more. Uh, the Navy Test Pilot School over Pax River, Maryland, uh had a mohawk um yeah it's uh you know something you know it's the mission basically that's done by unmanned aircraft these days yeah well if if there was ever a, a recall or something like that i would assume that the technology that would be added to it would not be a second hole in the in the fuselage <laughs> no you could probably take all the sophistication we had and you know put it in a thumb drive today but like you said like you pointed out it worked and it uh, worked it helped us helped us win in uh, desert shield and desert storm and i guess that's the bottom line of it yeah and <clears throat> the mohawk also had uh, cameras uh with 
you know, good old uh, film, you know, acetate type film that would be in these big uh, spools down there. Had a camera that uh, would be in the side of the aircraft, and then we had a camera, uh, you know, one, we could go either side with the camera, or we could go from the nose, we'd get a panographic from the nose, and also from the belly, we could do a panographic from the belly. Okay, so now the sides, were they vertical or horizontal as far as uh, what they uh, filmed? Uh, they they kind of, you know, these are, of course, still cameras, right? So they just do individual frames. But they look sort of uh, uh, downward and to the side. Okay, that's interesting. In fact... Um, the, uh, th- there was a time when we had uh, oh they were real concerned about a certain um, uh, uh, bridge that they couldn't get a battle damage assessment on this bridge and they uh, the, the weather was down the ceiling was too low for any kind of satellites or uh, these Air Force fast movers to go take pictures of it uh, and I thought about volunteering to go to my Mohawk down a couple hundred feet off the deck and take some pictures, but uh, it became a non-issue before I ever <laughs> raised my hand. Are you saying that uh, bridge was taken out? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we we didn't know uh, we didn't know at the time that how how much damage had been done to it. Interesting. Uh, I guess every war has its thing, and obviously uh, you all played a major role in, in uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and um, I'm glad you never had to uh, check on the safety of your seat um, and do any uh, ejections. That a friend of mine did uh, in Desert Storm, um, but he uh, that was only because he had stayed out too long uh, they told him the weather would be fine when he got back uh, it was a series of things that just went wrong that day and he had to he had to leave through the top mm. and uh, did he put his uh, survival escape and evasion into practice <laughs> well, he was back over Saudi territory they they came and got him in a truck um but he uh, actually broke his back on that ejection, uh, and he didn't realize it until uh, you know some uh, time uh, down the road. And he complained after after being cleared to go back and fly again. His back was bothering. We went to the doc and did an X-ray. and said, "Well, you need a fracture." Hmm. So, uh, so uh, he. Uh, yeah, sort of, sort of got off the flight line right quick. Phil, we're going to have to wrap it up. As always, thank you so much for doing this and helping us all remember Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we will keep up to date on the memorial and when the uh, when they're going to have the ceremony in D.C. And uh, we'll we'll have uh, our our uh, hosts there giving us a live report i hope so take care have a good weekend and thank you again for 
being on America's Web Radio and reminding us of Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we'll be back next week with Phil and more stories from the Middle East. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.